Welcome to the latest episode of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. In this episode, how does a pandemic come to be described as a scamdemic? What is exactly going on when people try to downplay a virus which, according to the World Health Organization, has killed more than a million people worldwide? Supporters of the idea of a scamdemic don't necessarily doubt that COVID-19 exists, but argue that it has been exaggerated in order to allow governments, including our own, to subdue the population. We'll be examining who these people are, why they believe what they believe in. Plus later, the unexplained connection between a group of scientists who've called for fewer lockdown restrictions and a PR agency with links to the government. Before all that, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't owned by any media mogul and we're not reliant on corporate sponsors or advertisers. Our funding comes directly from you, our readers, viewers and listeners. So please take out a subscription. Substart from as little as £29. Go to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. That's bylinetimes.com. So when does a pandemic come to be described as a scamdemic? Well, the pun may be modern, but the idea isn't. As Byline Times co-founder and executive editor Peter Jukes told the Double Down News YouTube channel, looking for a scapegoat is nothing new in times like these. The history of humanity is the history of pandemics. And the scariest thing about more recent history of pandemics is the way we blamed other people. The Black Death of the 14th century was accompanied by the worst pogroms against the Jewish populations of Europe. They were blamed for poisoning the wells. So scientific misinformation was deadly in the 14th century. There was disinformation around the Spanish flu, which killed millions of people. More recently, the AIDS virus was initially blamed on the CIA. Meanwhile, you've also had disinformation about pandemics to sow discord, to undermine people politically. It's no surprise that now, in the midst of, sort of the Brexit chaos and Trump running for re-election, that both Britain and America and elsewhere in Europe, anti-vaxxer, anti-mask, anti-coronavirus movement has taken off. It explains everything. If everything's a conspiracy, it's almost like a dark god. Everything's theologically connected. And when religion has declined, you can understand this simple conspiracy is like a theology. It explains so much. Peter Jukes. Now, the Byline Times' own TV channel, Byline TV, which you can view on YouTube, recently reported from a rally in Trafalgar Square, in which hundreds of demonstrators gathered to protest against social distancing rules and the wearing of face coverings in public. It was a diverse group, which included those who called coronavirus an out-and-out hoax, to others who described it as a plan-demic, created by governments to help them control their populations. Afterwards, Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu interviewed one of the speakers at the Trafalgar Square demo, Kate Shemarani, for Byline TV. So now, when I liken this to Auschwitz and the cattle trucks, you tell me the difference because the only time in history when I can find where the nurses and the doctors were allowed to end people's lives was the nurses of the Third Reich, where they took the disabled, the elderly, the epileptics, the children that were disabled. They took them into these places, institutions, they removed food, water, they gave them cocktails of drugs to kill them. The nurses of the Third Reich are here today and we now have the nurses and doctors. But where, where is the evidence for what you're saying, Kate? 
around you likening this to Auschwitz and the Holocaust, which I think a lot of a lot of people will find deeply offensive. Where is the I evidence? I find it offensive. I find it offensive that our elderly have been murdered in care homes. Stop being a special snowflake and saying you're offended. They are killing our elderly, our most vulnerable. Hardeep Matharu with Kate Shemirani. I put it to Hardeep that it was shocking to hear those kind of views from Kate being voiced in relation to a pandemic which has taken more than a million lives. Absolutely, Adrian. It's just incomprehensible, really. And as, as I said, you know, deeply offensive to, to be making those claims. And I think, you know, one of the things that was most concerning but also informative from my conversation with with Kate was that there is you know this this is this goes beyond reason uh, it certainly goes beyond the evaluation of truth and evidence and it's it's very difficult to if you like challenge someone who has such entrenched beliefs it's interesting that you call it a belief, because there does seem to be an element of those who call the pandemic a scamdemic, which goes beyond reason. It's people who hold on to a belief that something is going wrong in the governance of our country, the governance of the world, and that there is perhaps some deep-seated, ill-defined corruption out there, of which this is but one example. Absolutely. And I think... I mean, the coronavirus pandemic has affected us all. It's a time of great uncertainty. I think people are looking for some sort of meaning. You know, what what is the thread that runs through what is happening? And I guess not just the coronavirus, but, you know, recent political events, Brexit, Donald Trump, all, all sorts of kind of unexpected developments, if you like, have, I think got us to a point which is quite fundamental and profound, which is trusting in truth. You know, what what happens to democracies? What happens to societies when we get to the point where perhaps a minority, but a sizable minority, a growing minority, more people than we might like to think, does believe that doubt can be cast on perhaps the existence or the severity of the coronavirus. You know, what are the implications of that for democracy and, and how, how we operate in a society and as a political system? And I think that's that's really profound. I don't think it's surprising that off the back of the coronavirus, people are looking for answers. I guess. And there seems to be a lot of distrust, not only of, as you say, the agents of, of governance, politics, politicians, but also there's an issue, I think, with the media. Do we trust what we read? Are we being told things by the mainstream media that would ha- help actually help to counter some, some of this belief in, in conspiracies and, and doubts? You know, I think there's an issue there. But yeah, a lot of a lot of distrust is brewing. I think what was clear from talking to Kate was there are a few different things going on also within that. So you could see at the the protest in Trafalgar Square that there were some people there, you know, members of the public who, you know, think, yeah, the coronavirus 
coronavirus exists, but the severity is being amped up and there are reasons for that. And, you know, we've been inside all this time and it's why these measures being put in place and it's all about our freedom, our liberty. I think there is a group of people who are wanting to question whether the right approach has been taken in this country to the coronavirus. I also think what was troubling was there seems to be another cohort, which is, I'd argue, almost you know, we have to raise questions about a Trojan horse. So people with different agendas who are using this moment where people feel very unsettled, they're looking for meaning, they're looking for an explanation in a crisis, and actually using that as a means to publicize their talking points around things such as nation and race and identity. And I think that's potentially very problematic when you have the convergence of those two groups. And again, how how does how do we sort of counter that? And I think that was when I say that what was concerning about talking to Kate was, you know, it's beyond reason. So, yeah, it is. I, I was very confident that anything I said to counter many of the things that she was saying, which well, I, I felt incorrect, it wasn't really going to work. So when you get to that point, what do you do? Mm, that's a, a really good question. And, and also confronting or challenging these notions that the pandemic is a scamdemic is very difficult when it is such a broad church of people. Because on Kate's analysis, people are being deliberately killed in some kind of organised programme, organised by the state. Other people alongside Kate will tell you that People are not being killed. In fact, far fewer people are dying than we are being told is the truth. And the reason for that is so that the population can be subdued. So there are so many cross currents in there. It's actually quite difficult rationally to address one of those without contradicting what you might say to somebody else. That they aren't they aren't all singing from the same hymn sheet, but they are united and thinking that the coronavirus, as, as it's described to us through the mainstream media and by government, isn't true. Mm, yeah, I absolutely agree. People aren't singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think when it comes to sort of very extreme comparisons, such as the ones Kate was making about COVID-19 and the Holocaust and Auschwitz and a de deliberate programme to sort of murder people, I think we must always call that out and condemn it, present the evidence, challenge. I think when it comes to maybe this other cohort or cohorts of people, members of the public who, as you say, Adrian, have these varying views about the, the pandemic and how it's uh, and how uh, the response to it uh, by politicians. I think what, what I would say is that it, it's very easy, I think, to just dismiss and to sneer. And I don't think that's the right approach. I think the starting point has to always be understanding, not endorsing, not in agreement, not saying, well, actually, yeah, I, maybe I should believe that. But understanding how it is that certain people have developed these alternative interpretations, you know, um, why? Why is why are they vulnerable to that? Why a proportion of our society is susceptible to perhaps giving credence to this, to movements such as QAnon, which is talking about sort of, you know, Donald Trump as some sort of saviour of the world from pedophilia? You know, what what is motivating that? And I think 
actually the, the answers are not easy. They're much more structural. They're very complex. In a world where complexity is is difficult to convey and to explain, and you were looking for black and white sort of explanations and solutions and simplicity. You know, we're all, everything, the world is getting more complicated. Coronavirus is yet another example of that. In a time like that, you go to simplicity or people, some people will go to simplicity, not complexity, not nuance. I think that's also part of it. But I think it's understanding and not just dismissing these people as, oh, this is just stupid. Why? Well, how can people, you know, well, People believe it and they're citizens in the country. They're your fellow citizens. And if we all have to live in this country, we must try to understand what's happening, but not endorse. Who does this benefit then? And what political forces seek to benefit from this kind of uncertainty? I think on a fundamental level, it benefits and comforts people who feel that the world is increasingly an unsettled, uncertain and scary place. In terms of who then capitalises on that, it's populists and it's demagogues and it's organisations that want to harness the fact that people no longer have trust in the truth and they're doubtful of evidence and science. People who want to sort of use that to their own ends, I think, is the main one. I think... It also benefits all those who want to expose the vulnerability of, of democracy, I guess. I think what we've learned in recent years in particular is that democracy is not simply the end of history and an end point. It's something that has to be nurtured and worked on. It can't be taken for granted. We must never be complacent about the freedoms we have and the societies we live in, in liberal democracies. I think democracy by its nature, which is about plurality, is therefore vulnerable and susceptible to forces that want to undermine it. But I think if you become so complacent with it, you might not see that. And Adrian, we talked about, for some people, it is comforting to have some sort of explanation, whether it's QAnon or scandemic uh, movement as to uh, the crises that are going on. And I think the distrust I was talking about that has obviously festered and potentially is contributing to people looking for these alternative explanations, it's a distrust which also breeds disengagement. And I think disengagement is is very dangerous. Uh, We, you know, the people who believe that the coronavirus is is potentially a hoax or or is being cooked up to a certain degree, like you said, they are still our fellow citizens. We live in the same society, the same democracy. But if enough people start to disengage, distrust, and start to turn to alternative sources of faith, essentially, which is what I think it is, then that's a real problem. And the more people disengage, the more they then become ripe for, as I said, populists and and demagogues to start moving in and offering them alternative narratives, which is what they're already sort of the path they're already going down. Byline Times editor Hadeep Matharu. So has the idea that coronavirus is a hoax or that it's seriously exaggerated taken hold amongst the broader population? I've been canvassing views at West Bromwich bus station in Sandwell in the black country. 
It's one of those parts of the UK that has been operating with a stricter version of the national lockdown because of its high Covid rate. So do people there feel Covid-19 is made up or exaggerated? I think it's a load of rubbish. I believe what I hear off the press. My neighbour thinks that and I tell her she's talking out the hole in there. Let's say. When people like your neighbour say that it is a hoax, yes. what does that make you feel? Dumbstruck, really, that she could think like that because um, she thinks it's all to do with this 5G tower and everything. It's a government's way of trying to depopulise everywhere and I don't think that's right. But coronavirus is linked to 5G? Yes, the 5G towers that are going. It's radiation, it's not corona, it's, it's radiation. The ridiculous thing of it is... You can't go in the garden and talk to your neighbours. We go in the pub. And meet them. And meet them. <laughs> Wait, well, it's such silly things like that. My sister lives in South Australia. Um, they haven't, they've been on lockdown stage four, I believe it is, since March. They have a curfew between nine and five in the mornings. Nobody can go out. They can go out, I believe she says, one hour a day shopping, one person per household. Um, they allow two hours exercise a day. They have police and military on all the roads leading out of Adelaide. And if they stop you without a valid reason that you're actually leaving the state, everyone in the car gets a $2,000 fine. So if it's mum, dad and three children, it's $10,000. So would you support something more like that here? Something more of a clampdown? Yes. Yes. I would, most definitely, because there's, excuse my French, there's a load of dickheads out there that are flouting it and I think if they'd done this to begin with we wouldn't be in the state we're in now I think it would have well, been a lot more controlled look how many people are here now no face masks they're supposed to be wearing them so even as we're speaking now madam you've got your mask on you're obviously concerned that you might either might get coronavirus or pass it on well you don't know do you nobody knows nobody knows that so do you think the rules should be tougher yeah I do yeah I do yeah, a lot of people get on the buses with a mask and as soon as they're on the bus, off it comes. I sit at the back, other people get on the bus without a mask and, you know, there's just no deterrent. The, the bus driver's got no authority to tell them to wear a mask. So I think there ought to be policing, on random policing on the bus I really do. And coronavirus is a killer. Some views there from West Bromwich. I'm Adrian Goldberg. And a reminder that the Byline Times isn't owned by any media mogul. We're not reliant on corporate sponsors or advertisers. Our funding comes directly from you, our readers, viewers and listeners. So please take out a subscription. You can subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, another aspect of the pandemic has been the apparent divergence of views among scientists about how best to deal with coronavirus. Should we attempt to suppress it, which is broadly the government's approach, or move towards some kind of herd immunity in which protective measures are targeted at so-called at-risk groups, such as older people and those with pre-existing conditions? The latter view has been promoted by a small group of scientists who have now been investigated by Byline Times writer Nafiz Ahmed. He told me how his interest was piqued. The way in which I started this is I've been a critic of the government's 
response to the pandemic since really the beginning. And my early reporting on this at Byline especially, but also elsewhere, was really focusing on, on really the way in which the science was muddied by the government in order to essentially avoid doing anything about it for a very long time. I think what's happened right now is there is this very polarised narrative being put out, this idea that you are either with the government or against the government. You're either with the lockdown or against the lockdown. You either believe in coronavirus or you don't believe in coronavirus. I mean, these are really simplistic, rather stupid binary positions. And it's a shame that in a supposedly advanced democratic society, the public discourse has, has really degenerated into this infantile kind of set of dichotomies. And actually, the reality is far more complex. And the reality is, is that at the beginning of this process, the government was in huge denial about what was going on for all sorts of reasons which are difficult to understand and which you may not completely understand, and I certainly don't claim to understand it all. But for, for many months, the government didn't do what it should have done and didn't follow very solid scientific advice from not only from within its own scientific advisors, but also from the wider public health scientific community. And there was a pretty clear consensus that had emerged that the way to deal with this virus at the time was to essentially have a very, very strong suppression strategy designed to really push the virus down to the absolute minimum for about six to eight to 10 weeks. And once you've done that, once you've really crushed it, you can then begin opening up with a very strong and robust national test, trace and isolate strategy. But it would have to be very, very strong. It would have to be based on localized, strong public health infrastructure. It would have to be very responsive, you know, very rapid. But once you do that, you know, you can then slight, begin to, to get back to normal and you have a situation where, you know, local outbreaks, you can respond to them really quickly without having to damage wider society. And this has been the position of public health experts. I mean, there's been a consensus around this, I think, within the literature for many years around how to respond to pandemics generally. But I think it's you know, certainly over time, that consensus during the pandemic has really been reflected very strongly within both the peer-reviewed scientific literature around the COVID-19 pandemic, but also amongst people who may not have written directly about COVID-19, but have direct experience of responding to pandemics in their career over many years. So really, that's, that's the way I see it. But what's happened is, even at that time, we had a number of scientists who had come out, namely Sunetra Gupta, especially from Oxford University, who's a very distinguished scientist in her own right, and a theoretical epidemiologist, but whoever she hasn't published in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID. But what she did do, her and a team around her at Oxford published a number of papers earlier this year via Oxford University, which were essentially working papers. They were not scientifically peer-reviewed. They were self-published. Eventually, they made it to a well-known archive of publications where essentially you, you publish what are known as preprints. You put them there before they go to peer review and formal publication in a, in a respected journal. So, you know, these came out, these mod essentially these were exercises in modelling. 
they offered a theoretical way of trying to say that there might be a possibility of, of herd immunity, that maybe the way in which the infection has spread is consistent with the possibility that a large number of people have acquired immunity. And therefore, at this point in time, we can expect that the infection rates will, will eventually reduce. And what's interesting is that when Gupta first began articulating this idea, she actually predicted that the, the virus was well on its way out and that we wouldn't really see you know, uh, much of a resurgence. Now, that prediction was proven to be incorrect. Nevertheless, you know, she went on, you know, that was after her first paper came out earlier this year, I believe, sometime in March or April. I, I might have got the month off slightly. She then put, uh, published a similar model and that model took the argument further, whereas the first argument was that herd immunity would arrive when something like 60% of the population had acquired it. And that speculative model had tried to suggest that it was plausible to believe that maybe 60% of the British population had already acquired it, which most scientists said there was absolutely no empirical evidence for. And interestingly, obviously, the model itself provided no empirical evidence for it. And Many of the scientists, all the scientists I spoke to about it said, you know, interesting model, but, you know, it doesn't really track with any data. And in fact, the data that was available, according to the scientists I spoke to, you know, scientists from Italy, scientists in the UK, who were looking at, you know, death rates and things like that, they just said, well, it just doesn't really track the empirical data and the, the you know, the, the evidence we have on fatalities. Nevertheless, I think another paper came out in June, and then it, said that, well, only 15% of the population can acquire uh, the virus in order to have herd immunity. And then, you know, Gupta went around saying at this time that she believed that herd immunity was already acquired in London, in New York and elsewhere. And again, you know, the virus was likely to basically just disappear and fizzle out. And this idea was then take was has, you know, been taken up by a number of other scientists and um, listeners may be familiar with the, the the two letters that came out very recently in just before uh, the Boris Johnson government announced its latest measures in response to an anticipated pickup of coronavirus cases and you know we've already had an escalation of cases before then and, and there, there was a concern that if nothing is done and these are allowed to, to grow exponentially you know, we could get a really, really terrible second wave and, and, and many deaths and overwhelming of the healthcare system and so on and so forth. So Sudetra Gupta and I think 32 scientists signed a letter, didn't they, challenging the government's prescription for COVID. The government obviously moving towards a, a tighter lockdown. They argued that this wasn't necessary. They said that 89% of the deaths involved people over the age of 65. 95% of the deaths related to COVID were for people with pre-existing conditions, so that we didn't need this kind of lockdown across the general population. Absolutely. So, so, so you know, we had Sunetra Gupta, we had uh, Carl Hennigan, also at Oxford University, another very distinguished scientist, and we had Carol Sikora, another well-known doctor and also a fourth character was identified. So these four individuals were all identified as authors of the letter. And then you had a further set of signatories. Sam Williams, who is an economist 
and runs a company called Economic Insight Limited. So these guys wrote this letter criticizing the government's approach. And then we had another letter by, I think, something like 28 or 27 scientists saying precisely the opposite, that, you know, urging the government to take robust suppression measures. Yeah, this was, I think, 23 scientists on that, and led by Professor Tricia Greenhall at Oxford University. You explored the potential motives of these scientists, but I think one of your key arguments against them really was that the way that it was reported, because you had letters supporting the government, you had the letter from the group opposing the government, was the sense that there was some big divide within the scientific community over how serious COVID was and how to treat it. And your argument was that the 32 scientists led by Dr. Gupta were actually reflecting only a minority view and that the vast consensus was closer to the government's view. Well, here's the thing. I think that the most important thing to understand is that the government, even now, is not doing what it should be doing to deal with the pandemic based on the public health consensus. And that's been my position. It's been the position of many other people who are actually you know, experts at the forefront of this for quite a while. So it's worth bearing in mind that before we reached this situation, you know, I had been pouring through dozens and dozens of sage documents to understand what exactly the advice was being given to government. And it was as early as, I think, April, June. April, May, June, the government was receiving warnings from scientists of a second wave. And they were being told that if they did not implement a proper, robust national test, trace and isolate strategy, the second wave with exponential resurgence of the infection would be inevitable and the R number would go above one and so on and so forth. So they knew exactly what was coming. So for the government to be turning around and saying, you know, acting as if they were surprised by this outcome is absolutely horrific and astonishing. And this lockdown could have been avoided and should have been avoided. So there is a legitimacy to the criticism of the government and there is legitimacy to being sceptical of the way in which the government has lurched into a lockdown at this time in this way. But does that mean that these particular scientists and what they were calling for is correct? So, you know, having reported earlier on Gupta's work, and I had looked at this scientifically, I tried to understand it scientifically, and I came away with the conclusion that the science behind it was was wanting. And that was why she didn't get these papers published in peer-reviewed journals, in my view, from, from what I can see. What was also interesting was that at the time, I had unearthed the fact that she was being promoted, her work, this, these papers were being promoted by a small uh, PR agency, which, however, had very close connections with the British government, Sugru Communications. Now, this PR firm had done work very recently for the Ministry of Defence, for the British Army, for a number of other agencies. And Kebra Sugru, who runs the agency, himself sits on the board of a another company, which is part owned with the same company that owns the Behavioural Insights team, which is part owned by the Cabinet Office and part owned by Nesta. Nesta is basically a, a, a non-profit agency, which is independent of government which does a lot of non-profit work. 
So basically, we have this kind of nexus of connections, which lead all the way back to the government. So I, I covered this story. And again, at the time, my intention here was not to, I, I don't know what's going on, but it's very strange, very murky. And I contacted Gupta to find out what was going on um, and why and what was what was disturbing about this, you see, really is the question of who was funding Sugu Communications to do this work. If there is a direct, if Sugu Communications has this very close relationship with government and Cabra Sugu has, a, has personal direct contact with people who work in the nudge unit, this raises questions really about is there a conflict of interest? Now, I didn't offer any particular theory or construct about exactly what was going on here, but I put this out and I put this to Gupta and Gupta just didn't reply. She didn't respond to any questions, didn't offer any clarification. I mean, she could have at least have said, look, you know, I understand why you're asking these questions, but there's nothing to worry about. It's just a standard PR thing. I mean, there was no response. And so, you know, I ran the story and covered it and again, no response. So so Gupta herself has has this, you know, she seems to be moving in these circles and Sugu Communications is consistently behind the scenes. Nobody, and what again, Sugu Communications were found retweeting the letter that had just been put out by Gupta, Sakura and Hennigan. So, you know, there is this active ongoing communication support for what they are saying. And it really does raise questions. And I've, I've asked them publicly and in private correspondence, you know, before I ran my most recent story as well, who is funding this, this, this support? No response was received. And so I, you know, went further into looking at Hennigan and also looking at Sakura and Carl, uh, Carol Sakura is, and this is a matter of a long known public record that he's someone who has actually worked as a paid lobbyist. I mean, many years ago, set up a group called Doctors for Reform, which was described by many other MPs in the Houses of Parliament as nothing more than a conservative front group. He's worked with people like the Institute for Economic Affairs, which is, again, very well known as part of the Tufton Street network of lobbyists who have been lobbying for a hard Brexit. And he's also, most astonishingly, was paid to appear on American television adverts, funded, you know, pro-Republican Party adverts, essentially criticising the NHS and calling for the dismantlement of, of, of the NHS. And, and he himself has interests in private health care and so on and so forth. And that, all of this, to my mind, is very salient to understanding whether there is a set of lobbying forces having an influence on the opinion that they are articulating. Carl Hennigan also is not free of these sorts of concerns, apart from the fact that everything that he's been saying about COVID-19. So he's been one of the strong voices who's recently been saying, I mean, he published an op-ed in The Spectator, he published an op-ed in The Daily Mail, saying essentially the same thing, that he believed that the COVID-19 death toll had been potentially exaggerated, the way in which the numbers were calculated was incorrect, blah, blah, blah. Now, the thing is, is that he's been making these arguments at his Oxford COVID-19 evidence service, which is a, um, a platform that he set up and received funding for himself. And the thing is, is that every entry where he makes these arguments and he essentially self-publishes these on, on this platform, they have a disclaimer at the bottom. And the disclaimer says, 
not only that not that these entries are not peer reviewed it actually says that please do not use this as medical advice and fact checked every single source that is cited in the entry the irony here is that Carl Hennigan who under each of these entries is saying that you mustn't use any of this as medical advice is then going on and briefing with his colleague Gupta, Boris Johnson, you know, Boris Johnson was briefed by these guys in number 10 about their views and giving this advice as if it's sound medical advice, but he himself will disavow it in these legal disclaimers on his own website, which I find extraordinary. And he's articulating the same things on, on, the, on the Spectator and on the Daily Mail websites. What have they said to you when you've approached them and, and asked them for a, for a reply? I approached all four of them before publishing the, the article. And unfortunately, it didn't receive any reply from anybody. Interestingly, no, I, I approached them both. I approached them separately, in, you know, individually, with specific questions about each of their own issues. And I also approached them um, together uh, as a group uh, and, and, and received no response whatsoever. I've tagged them in tweets as well and raised questions to them directly in that way. And I've also called them out loudly and criticised them on Twitter. And again, I've received no response. There seems to me to be no interest at all in any sort of transparency and no interest in answering questions or engaging with criticisms, which is a very unusual thing to see scientists doing. Well, can I say, Nafiz, that if any one of the four wishes to publicly debate with you what you have published on Byline Times... I'd be happy to referee that debate here on the Byline Times podcast. Would you be happy to take on any one of those four in a sensible and reasoned debate here on the Byline Times podcast? Absolutely. I'd be delighted to have a chat with them as a journalist, trying to find out where they're coming from and to ask them questions about all of the issues that I've raised here. About, the, I mean, one of the questions I would ask one of the other co-authors of the letter, Sam Williams, for example, is, when he had his 2.3 million contract with the government as an economic consultant advising you know, HM Treasury and various other departments. And that contract was active when he signed this letter and also was active when he wrote a horrifying uh, study, economic study, which actually deliberately underestimated the COVID-19 death toll and suggested that the net impact of the lockdown was worse than the COVID-19 pandemic itself. And by the way, everyone I've spoken to about this piece of work, which he published at the time, has said that it's nothing more than pseudoscience. And this is the, this is the kind of stuff, I mean, it's very difficult to understand how these three scientists would team up with someone who's written such a ridiculous thing and then put forward to the government the idea that the net result of suppressing the virus would be worse than the COVID-19 pandemic itself, when it's based on such spurious evidence. So that's why I do believe that these, these are fringe voices. And, and you know, that most of the scientists that I've spoken to have, have indicated, and the scientific literature seems to indicate that there is a public health consensus. But I should emphasize that that consensus is also goes much further than what the government is doing. Yes, the government was right to begin to take action and to try and suppress the virus. But when we look into the detail of what the government is doing, the same public health experts who have supported 
the, the, the shift towards suppression strategy are also criticizing the government and saying that in the detail and in the delivery of the national test and trace system, for instance, in the way in which they're rolling out local lockdowns, in the way in which they're dealing with minorities, in the way in which they're dealing with marginalized communities, all of these things, there are fundamental imbalances, lack of planning, blunders, and all sorts of problems, you know, getting co-opted, private interests involved. All of these things have been heavily criticized by many people in this public health community. But the, what they're not saying is that we should just let it run and, you know, hide away the old people. Because what they are saying is that's that strategy is very unlikely to work because we don't have very clearly worked out way of doing it. And of course, there are other questions around what people are calling long COVID, the fact that young people and people who aren't in the elderly category are experiencing very dangerous COVID symptoms. Some of them are still dying. Yes, they are a minority, but they are deaths. And there are people who are suffering all sorts of long-term symptoms, which we don't really understand. So this is what what the public health community seem to be saying is that we we don't understand the virus. But if we do want to deal with this, we should look at the places which have actually worked. If we look to East Asia, what we see is that there is a way of not having, you know, draconian lockdowns, having strong test and trace, keeping the economies largely open. There is a way of doing that. So I think we need to avoid this very polarised left-right pro-government, anti-government discourse and focus on the facts but sadly, I think the particular people that identified in this letter were not part of that process. They represent very much, in my view, a fringe set of voices that don't represent the wider scientific consensus, which is moving towards the idea of look to Taiwan, look to East Asia, look to South Korea, look at what they're doing. We can see very, very proven methods. That's Nafiz Ahmed. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times is funded entirely by people like you. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, if you enjoy reading the Byline Times online, please think about subscribing. It's pretty cheap. Starts at £29 a year. Just get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you again in a fortnight. Thanks very much indeed for listening. 